Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the PQI podcast. This week, we sit down with Dr. Bajoy Televala to discuss anticoagulants. Dr. Televala is board certified in medical oncology, hematology, and internal medicine, and practices at Cancer Specialists of North Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Televala, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. To start out, will you please introduce yourself and give us a, an overview of your background and your current role? Okay. Ginger, thank you very much for having me here. And please call me the joy. Um, I've known you for more than 10 years, and yes, that's absolutely fine with me, or whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, my name is Dr. Telewala. I'm a practicing um, medical hematologist and oncologist in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm one of the partner physicians with Cancer Specialists of North Florida. Um, and I do all kinds of cancers and benign hematology. I do have a passion for doing benign hematology and I enjoy it tremendously. Wonderful, thank you. And with that, will you tell us about your practice and the setup there? I know I'm, I'm pretty familiar. And I, I'm hoping you'll mention this, but I know you do some work with the pharmacy and kind of drug drug oversight. So I, I hope you'll talk about that sometime. Um, so CSNF is the largest uh, community practice in Jacksonville, Florida. We have over 10 offices. Um, our motto and our belief is that the patient should not need to have to travel for hundreds of miles to see their provider. So we try to make an office or a treatment center where the patient is. Um, we are over 30 medical and radiation oncologists. Um, we have a full dispensing pharmacy. Um, and I do take part in um, handling some of their affairs. Um, full disclosure, the pharmacy team is fantastic. They do a great job. So they don't need a lot of handholding. But when they do, um, we do try to help. Uh, I do take part in drug negotiations, GPO contracts, um, certain negotiation when it comes to formularies and different things. Um, but I have to say that the entire pharmacy team is phenomenal at CSNF, and we are blessed to have all of them there. Great. Yes, they, they are a great team for sure. So you co-authored an article, thank you, in Oncolytics Today, the fall 2022 issue on oral anticoagulants. I know this is always a requested topic of discussion among our members, but why did you choose this topic for your article? I think that's a great question. Um, oral anticoagulants are very, very important in today's practice. Um, just to give a global perspective, the global oral anticoagulant market is close to $40 billion. Eliquis, one of the common ones, the generic name is Apixaban, it's, it sold drugs worth $6 billion in America last year. So these are not small numbers. There are a lot of people on these oral anticoagulants for multiple reasons. And it's very important for us as physicians, for pharmacists, for nurses, for everyone taking care of the patient to understand a few nuances, 
and rationale behind using them, and also when not to use what. Um, before I start a disclosure, I am not paid to talk by any of the pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Bayer, etc. Whatever I say is a combination of trial data, real-world evidence, and some personal experiences. It's usually a combination of these three things together, which form the strongest basis on which you try to see the patient, because the patient did not read the textbook and come to you. Each patient is unique. They have their unique needs, their unique wants, and their unique circumstances. You have to take those into consideration before you make a decision what is good for the patient that particular day. I love that. I love that you brought up the unique needs just because I know some people may think, well, this patient type is always going to get this and that's not the case. I love it that you always consider the patient as a person. Um, we are human beings first and patients second. Um, and we have to try to fit our treatments, options into their cultural, religious beliefs financial needs, and also what they believe. And their experience with medicine might be bad in the past, and we have to accept it and not say, well, that's all you can get. You have to be able to give them options if there are options available. I love it. Thank you. And so with all of that, what are the benefits of the direct oral anticoagulants over warfarin? So a couple of historical perspective, um, slightly history buff. So Ginger, do you know how the name warfarin came about? I feel like I should, but if I ever knew it, I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> so so warfarin is, if you take W-A-R-F, it stands for Wisconsin Alumni Research foundation. Okay. And Aaron comes from the word Kumarin. So they join together and they form warfarin. Oh. Now, yes. And so warfarin was developed years and years ago in one of in Wisconsin area and other places. You can read about it, but that's where how the name came. Now the question I'm going to pose, slightly rhetorical, but hear me out. What's an ideal anticoagulant? So in my mind, it's a medicine which prevents and treats the blood clots, causes no bleeding, is easy to take, has no side effects, and is very cheap. So when you take those five things together, there's nothing is perfect. So let's put the direct oral anticoagulants on one side and let's put warfarin on the other side. And then you do the checks and balances like an accountant does. Warfarin is cheaper than the direct oral anticoagulant. We all know about that. Warfarin is very difficult to manage because it interacts with practically every medicine you take, a lot of things that you eat. Compared to that, the direct oral anticoagulants are much easier to take. They do not need regular monitoring. And that's actually one of their unique selling points. Now, bleeding. Any anticoagulant will cause bleeding. Our body 
is a fine balance between clotting and bleeding. And our science has not reached that level where we can fine tune it to what our bodies were made. But the risk of bleeding generally with the direct oral anticoagulants is lower than it is with warfarin. The direct oral anticoagulants have a slightly better chance of preventing and treating your clot than warfarin. And we can talk about some of the studies down the line. But are they perfect? No. But they are much better than what we have today. And that's why a lot of people prefer the direct oral anticoagulants compared to warfarin. We all have a busy life. Coming to the doctor's office every couple of weeks to get a level check and adjust is very, very difficult for a lot of people. And that's where the direct oral anticoagulants play a very, very big role. Yes, for sure. And I know even, you know, on the pharmacist side, it's already hard enough and the physician too, but to compare things with, or, you know, to take into account all of the drugs a patient is on. But when you add diet, that's just a whole, I feel like that's a whole game changer as well, um, at least for me. But so you've talked about or touched on some of them, but what prescribing dilemmas exist in choosing an anticoagulant and then what patient considerations must be made? So great question. And, um, you know, this is where the common sense of medicine comes, okay? Um, so, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, everyone used to be in war for it as the direct oral anticoagulants came into play, majority are now on the direct oral anticoagulants. So one thing is, if a patient is stable on warfarin and doing well, there is no need to change them to direct oral anticoagulants, except for a few conditions, the biggest one being cancer patients. But since, let's say it's a new start or someone's on a DOAC, why would you choose a DOAC over a warfarin? Or where would you actually choose warfarin over DOAX? So there are certain conditions which I say absolute contraindications for DOAX. In my mind, the biggest one is, biggest and the practical one is cost. If a patient cannot afford $300, $400 a month, which sometimes becomes out of pocket, warfarin is very reasonable. The best medicine a patient can get is what she or he can take consistently on a how long it, they need to take it. So if you can only take a DOAC for a week, but you can take warfarin for two months, even if the data shows DOACs are superior to warfarin, warfarin is a better drug for the person. The second is a prosthetic heart valve. If you have that, there are multiple studies which have shown that the DOACs are significantly inferior to warfarin. And that's a condition where you should not use DOACs. The other is pregnancy. There is very little data to show safety. We don't know what happens. And in today's world, heparin-based products would be the standard of care for a pregnant woman and to an extent a breastfeeding woman. So you have to be careful there. Now comes the what I call relative. So, you know, these are all where you can debate and argue, no real answer, but keep in mind, 
Some people are allergic to the red dye. If it's a mild allergy, you could try it. But if they have a severe problem, you have to move to warfarin. The data in patients with their kidneys and livers not working perfectly well was never studied in the clinical trials. Because in the trials, the drug companies want the perfect patient. But real-world evidence is showing that patients with kidney disease, you can use it with apixaban being slightly better than rivaroxaban. The next is elevated BMI or morbid obesity. Again, patients not studied. You think, gee, if someone's 350 pounds, is the standard dose enough? Real-world evidence suggests it could be enough, but there's a slightly higher breakthrough risk. Someone with a gastric bypass. Now, you think that the absorption partially happens in the stomach, and you might be having a problem. So for some of these patients, I initially tried to use Novinox or Fondiparanox to get them to the acute phase and then transition them over to DOAC. Again, a personal style, not saying that that's written in stone. Now, a couple of hematological disorders, um, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, lupus anticoagulant. Two studies showed that warfarin was superior to rivaroxaban and apixaban. In the apixaban arm, they use the lower dose. So in today's world, if you have a patient who's lupus anticoagulant positive, you have to have a good reason for not using warfarin. So those would be the big things. Now, there are a couple of unique scenarios which I'd like to talk about. One is drug interactions. There are HIV medicines which interact a lot with apixaban and rivaroxaban, but they do not interact that much with Fredaxa or Dalgivatrin. So maybe consider using Fredaxa in that setting. The next is people with their right side of the colon removed. Let's say you have a colon cancer patient. The apixaban absorption happens in the terminal ileum and in the ascending colon, while rivaroxaban absorption happens more in the jejunum. So if you have someone with a right hemicolectomy, you might want to use rivaroxaban over a pixel. Just some nuances to keep in mind. Again, these are not set in stone. Um, you're never going to have big studies with these unique populations. Sometimes you need to use a bit of common sense and practicality. The one thing I'll say is when you tell a patient, gee, this drug's going to work well. Yes, it is. But it's not 100%. Even if you look at the trials, there was a breakthrough. Is the breakthrough because the patient missed the dose, because of a drug interaction, because of something else happening? It's probably a combination of multiple things. Nothing in life is 100%. Yes, very true. All good points. So with all that being said, are there any other ways that you are normally choosing which anticoagulant therapy you'll use? Anything else that you personally do for a patient? So when I see a patient, you know, I go through the DOAC versus warfarin talk. Um, and a lot of patients have said, listen, I've seen ads. I yeah. want to go on one versus the other. Very reasonable. If they don't fit into those, you know, criteria as we spoke about. I do talk about cost. Um, and I think as a prescribing physician, we have to take the onus on us and talk about cost of care. 
have a rough idea how much things cost. Have a rough idea that if the patient has a commercial insurance, they can use a copay card while they might not be able to use it for Medicare. Do not push it on the pharmacist and say, oh, this is the pharmacist's responsibility. No. The patient has come to you for an opinion. And I think it's okay to say, this is going to be more expensive. It's going to be approximately so much. And when you talk to patients four or five times, you'll realize what the approximation is. And you let patients make a choice. I personally, if it was me, I would like to go on a DOAC unless if there were special reasons where I could not go on a DOAC. Um, among the DOACs, I prefer apixaban more than rivaroxaban. Simple reason is, if you look at the oncological cancer and apixaban and rivaroxaban studies, in a couple of studies, apixaban was superior to warfarin while rivaroxaban was equal to warfarin. If you look at the original rivaroxaban study, the comparator arm was warfarin, and there was a big New York Times article where 20% of the people had a faulty machine for the INRs. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, the pharmacokinetics. Apixaban has a shorter half-life, so the problem is quicker out of system. Same time, you'll take it twice a day. So there's a patient who says, gee, I will not take a drug twice a day. Then rivaroxaban is a drug for them. So all of this goes in my head. It's like a checklist. Um, and then you talk to them and see what they like. They might have had a family member who had a major bleeding on a fixaban. They don't want to go on it. The other thing to consider is we use less and less Pradaxa, but it's now generic. For some people, it becomes cheaper. So it's not unreasonable to consider using it. I do not use a lot of Edoxaban, so I don't have great experience using that particular one. One of my mentors said it very well. When there are multiple drugs, with similar activities, learn to get to know a few of them very well, and you'll become a better doctor than trying to be an average knowledge of all of them so that these nuances you can't handle or pick up. I think that's great advice, great advice from your mentor. And with all of that, are there other special considerations for DOACs in cancer? Okay. So, for years, you know, we know cancer patients have much higher risk of blood clots than the average population. Pancreatic, stomach, kidney, GBMs, lungs. Usually the risk goes higher as you get metastatic disease, dependent cancer. And there's a score actually you can calculate called as a Corana score, which gives you an estimation. Again, so years ago, we only had warfarin. Then around 15 years ago came the pivotal paper where they compared warfarin to inahep, which is a low molecular weight heparin, which showed that the low molecular weight heparin was much better when it came to bleeding as well as reduction in future clots. So we started moving away from warfarin to low molecular weight heparin. Now there are multiple trials which show that apixaban and rivaroxaban are equal to maybe slightly better to low molecular weight heparin. That is why we like to use those DOACs. But there are certain conditions, like if you look at the select the trials for rivaroxaban, there was a higher risk of bleeding in the GI malignancies and the GU malignancies. So for them, maybe use low molecular weight heparin instead of rivaroxaban. 
or use a pixabel. So you have to try to play, see where the patient fits and what the patient can take. If the patient has very bad nausea and vomiting, and I'm going to throw up 50% of the times, low molecular weight heparin is the way to go. But for convenience sake, it's much easier for someone to take a pill rather than take a shot twice a day. We all get tired, forget. It hurts. There are bruising with low monoxin. It's no fun. I would agree with that. You you tell me I have to use a needle every day and... I might not come to see you again. Just kidding. Twice a day, not once a day, twice a day. Twice a day, at all, every day. <laughs> and I feel hats off to all the pregnant women who yes. do it because unfortunately for them, we don't want to access safe and we cannot in good faith give it to someone. So, I mean, it's not easy when you're eight months pregnant, it's difficult to find a spot. It hurts, and I am very, very impressed. And I'm in awe that they're able to do it, and they complain the least. Well, you know, Mother's Day was yesterday, so those that, those mamas mamas start loving their babies pretty pretty early before they yes. come out. So, <laughs> already sacrificing for them. Um, and are there other special considerations than what we've already discussed? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think so. There's anything special beyond that that we need to um, talk about. I'm sure there is things like, okay, we'll talk about anti-epileptics. So the two older ones, phenobarbital, phenytoin, they all rev up the cytochrome P450. So it's true across the board for any medicine you give men in combination with that they will get excreted out much more quicker than they should. So they will work less. The same for the cytochrome P450 suppressors like ketoconazole. But fortunately, we use very less of ketoconazole, phenytoin, and phenobarb in today's world because we have better antifungals and we have better antiepileptics. So if someone's on it, you know, you have to be, Careful. Again, a relative, not an absolute um, contraindication per se. Um, and you tell the patient that, listen, I'm not 100% sure. Warfarin, I can monitor it. You know, there are newer factor 10 ASAs for a pixaban. Thank you. You're, you're like a detective and you have lots of, lots of things to consider, I feel like, when you're prescribing these. And it's a mental checklist, which you have to go through. I get. I guess after doing it over and over again, maybe that checklist is ingrained in there forever. What What about extended therapy? I think that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so, what is extended therapy? So, <clears throat> the first blood clot you treat for three to six months, and we are mainly talking about DVTs and pulmonary embolisms. I'm excluding the rarer areas of blood clots like portal veins sagittal sinus thrombosis, et cetera. You know, the thought is you do not need extended therapy. Now, there are some people who have, let's say they're homozygous for factor V ligand gene mutation. You know that their risk of a blood clot down the line is going to be much higher. And you have an honest conversation with them. I'm going to give you two examples, okay? Let's say 
a woman who's 35 years old comes to you with a massive PE, has a family history, you treat her for three to six months, she's found to be not heterozygous, homozygous for factor V lighting gene mutation. She has no menorrhagia, no GI bleeding. She travels a lot. And she's worried that she's going to get out of the blood clot. So after six months, you could consider dropping the dose and putting her on extended, saying that, listen, this would reduce the risk, but it comes with a cost and an increased risk of bleeding. So 80-year-old man, three GI bleeds, two falls, unprovoked clot, you anticoagulate him for three months, he feels great. His risk of bleeding is much higher. He's probably on six other medicines. They're going to interact with the blood thinner, probably on an aspirin and Plavix for the heart condition. You do not want to give him extended therapy. And remember, the data for extended therapy is, yes, you might show a little less clots in some people, but you need to balance it with the risk of bleeding, risk of cost. And the big question, which no trials answer is, does it actually make people live longer? Because in the end, what matters is how long you live, how well you live, how happy you live. We should move away from surrogate endpoints to more stronger endpoints saying, okay, I reduced two clots and I made Mrs. X live three years longer. That's fantastic. I would agree with that. I think in all areas if we could move that way. And then is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? I have two final questions for you at the end that we ask everyone, but before that, this has been very informative. So the one thing is, you know, I always say it's a teamwork. Um, When I, as a physician, I'm putting in a prescription for any blood thinner, I have to enter the diagnosis in the electronic medical records. I have to attach that diagnosis to my prescription. Majority of EMRs allow you to do that. So it's easier for the pharmacist. If he or she has to go through the process of getting a prior auth, getting something else, the diagnosis is right there, be it a DVT, be it a pulmonary embolism for the cardiologist, be it atrial fibrillation, whatever the indication might be, I should do that. And the second thing, we all know what happened when CVS played the games with Apixaban. They took people off a stable med without any medical rational reasons. There might have been backroom deals. I have no idea about them. We should fight. This is not good. If you're on a stable medicine, and it's not that you're being replaced by something much superior or much cheaper for the cash price. Why should someone be made to go through that? If their doctor chooses a different blood thinner, so be it. But I'm glad the pharmacy association, the physician association, various people were able to lobby against it because it is very, very difficult for a patient And we don't know how many extra clots happened, how many extra bleeding events happened. We'll never have that data. But in the end, each patient is a human being. Let's not lump them as, okay, I can lump all of them and say, this is what you're going to get. Especially when things are pretty much equal. 
Great, great points for everyone to consider and think about too. Yes. Two more things. Sorry. One is reversal agents are available for Pradaxa, Eloquis, and Xeralto. The one for Pradaxa is much cheaper. The one for Eloquis and Xeralto is significantly more expensive. That data is mainly in the neurosurgical literature. Uh, not all hospitals carry it, so something to think about. And looking at the future, we're going to get factor 11 inhibitors as a newer, newest anticoagulant. There's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine and a couple more in other publications. So they are the new class of drugs which are going to come. Remember, Eloquist and Xarelto are factor 10 inhibitors. That's the common pathway. Pradaxa is a thrombin inhibitor, which even comes below that. Factor 11 is part of the intrinsic pathway. So it might have some theoretical advantages, but again, we have to see the data before we decide. All right. Well, when that happens, we'll have you back on the podcast to, to maybe go over the data with us. That would be really interesting. And then, so finally, the two questions we ask all of our guests, the podcast is called the PQI podcast to bring awareness to ENCODA's positive quality intervention resource. And I know you have worked with us on projects, a couple projects surrounding the PQIs, but what value do you see in this resource? You know, as I mentioned, anticoagulants are very common. So many people are on it. So even if someone picks up one or two points, be it the physician with the prescribing patterns, be it the pharmacist with the drug interactions, be it a patient or a support caregiver to ask their physician or healthcare provider these questions, we have made some progress. And I think that's where the value is. No one will remember everything. It's impossible. Um, so that's where I see the value in this. Thank you. And then our final fun question. So if you could have dinner with anyone living or in history, who would it be? And then I also have, I tack on a second part and what would be on your menu? So what would you have to eat? And I think you might be a vegetarian. So I am a vegetarian. So, um, so if I really had to have dinner with someone, um, it would be my grandparents. So out of my four grandparents, three of them are no more. Only my mother's mom is alive. Um, so if I can have all four of them together and have dinner with them, that would be my dream. Um, what would I eat? There's an Indian dish called as khichdi, which is actually rice and dal okay. mixed together with buttermilk. Um, it's a traditional Gujarati dish. Um, so that's what I would eat because I know I would enjoy it and all four of my grandparents would enjoy it too. That's wonderful. I think it's a great a great choice on both the the entree and the company. So, see one thing I think we all would love to have is see our grandparents again or some of us. So, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You have been so informative and I appreciate your time and everything that you do for your patients. Thank you very much Ginger and I had a great time. Really enjoyed this um, and hope to see you again. Yes, very soon. Maybe at our fall summit. Maybe. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Telavala. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and on encoda.org. That's N-C-O-D-A dot org.
Don't forget to follow along. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI Podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI Podcast. Thanks, everybody.